Even I've had to do, it feels like, two introductions to the book. If we look at 1 through 3, and then we look at 4 through 8, and I was really excited at 9 through 20 to finally get a nice big chunk, and the more I study this passage, I realize this is not going to happen in, uh, in one week unless we want to be here for two or three hours. So I'll, I'll probably at least break it up into two parts. Uh, it may end up being three, but I have some comfort in that a number of the other pastors that I like to listen to, well-known pastors, recognize the same thing. And so you'll have, they have like three parts to just these, this one section, verses 9 through 20. And it's, it's loaded, and I do believe uh, it will be an encouragement to you as we look at uh, what is revealed in this text. So I, I would break down the text into three parts. Uh, John's charge from Christ... Then, of course, the vision that he has of Christ and, and all of its symbolic references. And then his response to Christ um, after he sees him. Let's, let's look, first of all, at his charge that he receives from Christ. Uh, in verses 9 through 11, John describes this charge, and he introduces himself as the one who's writing. He notes where he's writing from. He notes when he is writing and what he is supposed to write. And then he specifies who he's writing to. So you have who, where, when, what, and who. So this will be a little bit of a review of the stuff that we looked at in the overview messages. Let's look first of all at the who. Verse 9, it says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. So he describes himself in two ways to his fellow Christians. He is a brother, and he's a fellow partaker in three things. Tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance. Now, in describing himself as a brother, John is positioning himself to his readers as a peer. Uh, he could describe himself in many ways. Um, even though he was an apostle, he doesn't call himself an apostle. In fact, he was the last of the apostles alive at this time. And so that would carry significant weight and credibility. But he doesn't cite his credentials, but rather his camaraderie with those with whom he's writing to. He's, he's writing as a family member, as one who is, a, again, a fellow partaker, as one who's going through the same things as they're going through, one who genuinely cares for the interests of those to whom he's writing. Now, there, there are certainly times where citing a person's credentials uh, is helpful, maybe even necessary. So you're talking to maybe critics or uh, people who don't know you, and so they don't know why they should listen to you, and so it might be helpful to explain why you've been asked to talk about a topic. Um, or maybe you're speaking to people who don't trust you. So citing why you're speaking as an authority could be helpful in those cases. Paul, of course, would frequently introduce himself as an apostle, uh, to the churches that he's writing, and he would do so because he wanted them to recognize that he's not just passing along good advice, 
but he was speaking as an authoritative spokesman who had been personally appointed by Christ to communicate to the church how they were supposed to function. So what Paul wrote was not take it or leave it. It was the word of God. And he wanted them to understand that. He was writing as an apostle. But most likely, the reason John introduced himself as a brother and a fellow partaker in these three ways is, I think, just to provide comfort to this to these churches that were about to go through significant trials. And the church has gone through trials ever since its beginning. And John wants, wants his listeners to know he's not speaking from an ivory tower. He's speaking from the trenches, so to speak. He's one that's going through the difficulties with these people. He's, he's seeking to be a good leader. And as you guys know, just from your own life experience, the best leaders are those who lead by example. They don't just lead by command, but they do what they're asking others to do. As Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Right? It wasn't just do what I tell you to do, but follow me. Do what I'm doing as I'm seeking to follow Christ. John's doing something similar here. And I think that's helpful just for us to remember, especially uh, in the positions where we've been appointed to lead. In family, or in a work environment, um, in, in the community, at the church. Um, we, need, we should ask ourselves, not just what do we need to tell the people we're leading to do, what's the, what's the, the correct instruction, but how can we actually be a better example to them so that they can know what they can do better? Like, how can we exemplify what we're asking them to do in our own life? So John describes himself as a brother, but also a fellow partaker. And he mentions three things. And, and what he's doing here is similar to like when you, you get a job or you're, you're going, you're a student at a new school. And you go through what they would describe as an orientation. They tell you what to expect now that you're new to this company or to this school. And here, what John's doing is he's orienting these Christians to what it means to be a Christian. Both in the present and what it's going to look like in the future. And the first thing that he wants them to know is that in coming to Christ, they've embraced a life of tribulation. All right, John was there with Jesus in the upper room when Jesus told his disciples, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And in Acts 14, it's, it says that Paul and Barnabas, as they returned uh, to the churches they had planted and, and initially um, brought the gospel to, that as they went on their preaching tour, and that they sought to do three things. It says, they went about strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are the three things that were their preaching topics. They wanted to encourage them, strengthen their faith, and say, again, it is through many tribulations that we will enter the kingdom of heaven. To be, to be a Christian is to embrace a life of tribulation. The road to the celestial city is hard by design. And that's because God has chosen to use tribulation as a way to prove to us that our faith is real. One of the things that God wants us to have absolute certainty of is 
our salvation. He wants every believer to be assured that they're saved. And there are many Christians that struggle with, am I saved or am I not saved? That is not God's will. He wants us to have absolute assurance, and that's why he brings trials. Because it's through the trials that our faith is tested and proven. When we don't throw in the towel, when we endure, when it produces good spiritual fruit, rather than things we're ashamed of. This is why Paul writes in Romans 5, Not only that, but we rejoice in our tribulations. Why? He says, Knowing that tribulation produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so as Christians, again, we need to expect that life is going to be difficult by design, not by accident. It's not because we've necessarily done something wrong. It's, we should expect it. And as things begin to get harder in our lives and in our nation, it, we shouldn't be shocked by it. We just should assume this is what's going to happen. Because God wants us to have confidence that our faith is real. And even as we grow in confidence under tribulation, so do other people. Because they go, that person's faith is real. They're not just caving because, you know, the sun went behind a cloud in their life. Their, their joy is proven through the trials. Their faith is real. And I think given the extraordinary amount of trials just that our church has faced in the last few months, and it has been an extraordinary amount. It's so much so I can't even rem- – I forget. I mean, in the teens at least, probably half the members of our church have family members or they themselves are going through a significant trial. Just two today, I heard. And I, <laughs> I'm tempted to put a disclaimer notice on anybody that comes to visit our church that in seeking to come to our church, things are probably going to get hard for you or for your family. But in choosing to follow Jesus, Jesus purposes to allow our faith to be tested. Because he wants us to know our faith is real. And he wants others to know our faith is real. As Paul said in Acts 14, through many tribulations we will enter the kingdom of God. And the kingdom that John is referring to here, the second thing he mentions, is the one that Christ is about to establish on the earth. That that is going to be uh, revealed in the rest of this book especially towards the end. And Christians become citizens of the kingdom of heaven the moment they're born again, when they place their faith in Christ. However, they don't receive the full benefits of that yet. They won't receive those benefits until Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. So it's, it's like we've been given the tickets, but we haven't yet arrived at the destination. Like we will be able to get in, but... The journey to get to that destination that we have tickets to is going to be hard. Or to use Bunyan's analogy, we have the scroll, but we've got to go on a long journey before we actually reach the celestial city. And it will be hard. It won't be the broad way. It'll be the narrow way. And we have to to recognize that's normal. It's by design. And John reminds us that this this journey, again, it's not going to be easy. In fact, it will require perseverance. Now, just think about that. By definition, perseverance means 
things are going to be hard. You wouldn't need perseverance if it wasn't going to be hard. You don't need perseverance to finish your favorite dessert. <laughs> if you said, hey, I persevered needing it, nobody would believe you. Right? you don't, we need perseverance to the things that our flesh doesn't like, that we're repulsed by. Right? When somebody comes, comes to you and says, you're going to need perseverance for this, your, your flesh, you, could, you, just, you feel it cringe. Because, you know, this is not going to be fun. It's going to be hard, either mentally or physically, spiritually. And John's saying, this is going to be hard on the flesh. But notice also how John describes that perseverance. This is, this is so sweet. The perseverance that is in Christ. It is in Christ. And what he's saying is that all who are in Christ will persevere. So he's not so much calling them to perseverance, so they, they will. He, he will call them to perseverance throughout the book. But he's saying that perseverance is part of who you are. It's been given to you in Christ. All who are truly in Christ will persevere through tribulations, through suffering, through temptation, and through tortures. Not just because they're tougher, or because they're smarter, or because they're stronger than others, but simply because they're in Christ, Christ will hold them fast through the trials. He won't let their faith fail. He won't let the tempter to prevail upon them. He will hold them fast. When I was uh, in high school, even before I was in high school, I had great ambitions uh, to be a, a professional football player, to play in the NFL. And I wasn't going to... I wasn't gonna, except at the XFL or the Canadian Football League. That was, that was too far below me. I had great ambitions for myself. Started playing football when I got into high school. Uh, but by my junior year, I actually quit the team mid-season. And many, there were many reasons why I decided to quit, but the, the, the main reason was just I wasn't enjoying myself anymore. It wasn't fun. Now, typically, people choose to throw in the towel on something they've committed to because the costs no longer um, the, the costs outweigh the benefits to why they decided to engage within it. And this is why many people assume that Christians are faithful because uh, they're going to be faithful because of all the amazing benefits that Christ offers. But truth be told, even though there are great benefits for our salvation that far outweigh its challenges, Romans 8.18, like Paul says, For I consider the, press, the sufferings of this present world uh, in no comparison to what's going to be revealed to us. But this is not what keeps Christians from quitting. It's, it, we, don't, we don't endure because the trial, the, the benefits outweigh the challenges. What keeps us from quitting is God. God keeps us from quitting. The Bible teaches that our eternal security rests not in the perseverance of the saints, but in the promises of God. The saints persevere because of the promises of God. He keeps us in the faith. And there are clear promises in Scripture that the saints will be preserved blameless until the end. I encourage you to look at these. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 9. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. It says, God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He will sustain us to the end. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He himself will sanctify you completely. Then Jude 24, right close to Revelation. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory and great joy. He's going to do it. He's going to keep you. He's going to present you. And then 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 4. He's, we're, we've been given an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I mean, do you see the emphasis there? It's God's power. That's the reason we persevere. Brothers and sisters, you will persevere until the end if you're truly a believer. But not because you're smarter, stronger, or wiser but because God has promised he will bring you home. None of his sheep will be lost. This is how the Westminster Confession of Faith defines the doctrine of perseverance. I'll read it to you if, you, if you're not able to, to read it on the screen. It says, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. It cites five or six texts. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but on the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ the abiding of the Spirit and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which arise also the certainty and infallibility thereof. And it, what it's saying, in short, is the reason Christians will persevere is because God has promised they will persevere. And God cannot lie. He'll make sure it happens. So as this definition demonstrates, true Christians will never lose their salvation. But this does not mean that Christians can ever quit in their pursuit of sanctification or quit in their pursuit of Christ-likeness and still enter heaven. Rather, Christians must persevere in order to be saved. They must persevere because God will cause them to persevere. We can't quit. And we won't quit. Because God won't let us. If we try to quit, it'll get really hard on us until we realize it's not worth quitting because he's a loving God and he will discipline us as, we are, as is necessary. So John has told us who, he's, who is writing. Next, he tells us where he is writing from. He says, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word and testimony of Jesus. Patmos was a small, rocky, uh, volcanic rock throughout the island, uh, middle in the middle of the Aegean Sea. Just it's about 30 miles or so off the coast of Asia Minor. Closest city would have been Miletus. Um, it's only about 10 miles long, 
six miles wide, so it's not very big. John says that the reason he's writing from there is because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, which tells us he's not there because he's on vacation. He's, he's there because he's been sent there on account of his preaching. Uh, we do know from, uh, I believe it was Tacitus and some other Roman authors that the, these Aegean islands during the first century was where they would exile criminals to. And this would correspond to what John is saying here. So he's there on account of his testimony of the gospel. He is a fellow partaker in the tribulation, as he said. Next he mentions um, when he receives this revelation. Verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Now, the Lord's day, as you probably know, refers to Sunday, because this was the, the day that the Lord rose from the grave, Luke 24, verse 1. And eventually, the church would choose to, to gather on Sundays as their day of worship. Um, initially, as we've been reading in the book of Acts, um, after Pentecost, they they met together throughout the week. It wasn't just one day. They were meeting together as much as they could. But eventually they settled on Sunday to be their day of worship. Uh, we see this in Acts 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 16, 2. It leads us to that. And if you read the Didache, which is an early church document, it also mentions that they, they met together weekly on Sunday. Now, sometimes you will hear Christians describe Sunday as their Sabbath day. Uh, but in this regard, Seventh-day Adventists uh, have it right. And they correctly identify that Saturday is the Sabbath. And I say that because there's nowhere in Scripture that ever calls the Sabbath or ever mentions the Sabbath changing from Saturday to Sunday. The Sabbath was established as the sixth day of creation because that's when God rested. And there's nothing that would indicate that he ever changed the Sabbath. The Sabbath is still Saturday. The sixth day. And that's why the SDA chooses to worship on Saturday. However, rightly understood, the Sabbath was never ordained to be a day of worship. And that's where I think the misunderstanding comes from. What was the purpose of the Sabbath? It was a day of rest. Which is quite likely why the church chose not to worship on Sabbath. So they wouldn't, it wouldn't be a conflict for any of the, the Jews that had that they were in the midst of. Many of the Christians, of course, were Jews, especially early on. Is that they, would, they didn't want to be a stumbling block to their fellow Jews. And so they worshipped on Sunday because, again, Saturday was to be a day of rest. Um, and so it's Sunday, the Lord's Day, that John receives this revelation. And he says it began with him hearing a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, throughout the book of Revelation... The loud voice or trumpet indicates the solemnity about what's going to be revealed. And it's, it's reminiscent of the giving of the lots at Sinai. You remember when they came to Sinai, there was, again, a voice like a loud trumpet so much so that they covered their ears and they said, you need to, to speak to God and mediate to him for us because we can't handle um, his voice. And so Moses then was served as a mediator to Israel. So John hears this loud voice, and then he tells us what he was charged to write. He says in verse 11, write in a book what you see. 
Now, this is the first of 12 commands in the book of Revelation that John receives to write what he saw. So 12 times he's told to write what he sees. It's a significant number. And then one time in uh, chapter 10, verse 4, he's told to not write what he sees, but to seal it up. And we'll, we'll look at that later. John then tells us what he's told to write, or who he's told to write to, I should say. He's told to write to the seven churches. Uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now these were all, all these were seven churches in Asia Minor, what we'd call modern-day Turkey. And uh, a messenger who landed at Miletus from Patmos, so, so they had received this message from John, they would go to, to Miletus, and after landing at Miletus, the first place they would come to is Ephesus, and then in a clockwise circle, they'd go to Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Thyatira, Cyrus, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. And as they would go there, these copies of the Revelation would have been distributed to each of the churches. So that's why they're in the order that they're in. So he's going to write to the seven churches, and we'll look at what he says to the seven churches in the weeks ahead. But next, John actually describes a vision that he has of Christ. Verse 12. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. So in this section, John's describing for us the one who's speaking. And we know that the one who's speaking is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because in verse 13, he's described as the Son of Man. Now this was Jesus' favorite description of himself in the Gospels. And it, it actually comes from Daniel chapter 7 uh, that describes the Messiah in these words. Daniel 7 verse 13. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, that is the son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now that's, that's the book of Revelation, in short. This is what Revelation is going to reveal. And, and what we're seeing here is the one revealed or spoken of in the book of Daniel is the one who is speaking right now to John and is saying, I'm going to bring it all about. It's going to happen. I'm who was being spoken of. I'm the Son of Man. And we also know this is Jesus because of how the Son of Man describes himself in verses 17 and 18. Right? It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Who else died and became alive forevermore? Right? That, there's only one person. There's also only one person who could say, I'm the first and the last. So this is Christ, the Son of God. And it's in interesting language, John says he turned to see the voice that was speaking. Think about it, what would that look like? Turning and seeing a voice. Such language strongly suggests that we're, 
It's supposed to interpret what John sees here more symbolically rather than literally. Because you can't see a voice. Another example of symbolic over literal interpretation here is, is the sword that comes out of the mouth of Christ that's described here. Right? He didn't have a sword protruding out of his mouth. He's, it's, it's a symbolic description of the, the power of Christ's word. So the risen Christ, the sovereign Lord of the universe, is being described here in symbolic language. And the first way he's described is he's in the midst of seven lampstands. And when John sees these seven golden lampstands, he sees Christ in the midst of them. Now, a lampstand was uh, a typical piece of furniture. Uh, Lamps were filled with oil, and in order to, to... not set it on the ground, but to, so if you, you shed light throughout the room, you would put it on a lampstand. These are for oil-filled lamps. Uh, you can think of the menorah, the seven-branched lampstand that is the symbol of Israel even today. That's, that's what a lampstand is. And so John sees them, and we're told that those lampstands symbolize the seven churches John's writing to in verse 20. So, and the fact that J- John sees Jesus in the middle of the lampstand signifies... That Christ is in the midst of the churches. That's the point. This depicts what theologians call the imminence of God. Imminence comes from the Latin word meaning to remain. It means Christ is with us in everything that we're going through. The, The churches will face trials and tribulations... And in, in all their struggles, in all of their successes, Christ is with them. In all their sins that we'll look at in the weeks ahead, Christ is with them. In their faithfulness, he sees it. He, he's, Christ is not up in heaven seeing the challenges that are facing the church and the mistakes that these churches are making. He's not up there wringing his hands saying, why won't they listen to me? What should I do? He not only sees what's taking place, he's here in the midst of us experiencing what we experience. And this is because Christ, in his eternal essence, truly lives in every believer. And that's a fact. Christ, in his eternal essence, truly lives in every believer. And this is taught throughout the scriptures. Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I'm in the Father and you in me and I in you. Jesus said that in his high priestly prayer to God the Father. John 17, 26, Jesus prayed that the love that the Father had for him would be in believers also. And not only that, he says, and I in them. Paul told the Colossians that the mystery of the gospel that he proclaimed was Christ in you, the hope of glory. He prayed for the Ephesians that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And the Galatians. 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but 
Christ who lives in me. Now think about that. The eternal essence of the second member of the Trinity lives within you. This assurance that Christ is with the churches is meant to bolster them with confidence in the tribulations and the trials that are coming. Nothing will happen to these churches that Christ does not design. That Christ not only does not allow, but that he does not purpose. John Payton, who was a missionary in the South Seas a few centuries ago, expressed that it was this very promise of Christ's imminence that kept him going, that kept him enduring, that kept him persevering through all the losses, through all the discouragements that he faced on a daily basis. He said as in his autobiography, without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my dear Lord and Savior, nothing else in all the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. In his words, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, became to me so real that it would not have startled me to behold him as Stephen did, gazing down upon the scene. I felt his supporting power. It's the sober truth, and it comes back to me sweetly after 20 years, that I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the face and smiles of my blessed Lord in those dread moments when musket, club, or spear was being leveled at my life. Oh, the bliss of living and enduring at seeing him who is invisible. And that's almost a near quote of what Bunyan said got him through. He lived, he learned, Bunyan said, I learned to live upon a God who was invisible. Because he knew that God was with him and would never forsake him. Let's pray. Christ, give us such confidence. So as we face suffering and success, we would not be shaken. We would not be moved. We would not be elevated in pride, nor would we grovel in self-pity. But that our faith would be strong and that we would know how we can go about strengthening the faith of others, helping them to endure as they too face trials. Lord, we don't want to be naive and we don't want to, to, to... um, Lord, we don't want to presume more than what is true. We know we need strength. We know we need help. We know we need to grow. And we pray that you would give us such confidence in who you are, that we would remain faithful. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, to, for prayer, to, uh, the